We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew 5, verse 17. We're continuing our study in the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to look at verses 17 to 20 this morning. So I invite you to open up to that passage. In August of 2002, uh, a couple from Britain uh, boarded a plane at London's Heathrow Airport. They were planning, they'd planned this great trip. They were going to Australia. They were going to explore. Uh, They had saved for this and booked this with great anticipation, uh, great enthusiasm. And so they boarded the flight. And after a six-hour flight, they touched down in Halifax to their surprise. As it dawned on them where they were, they thought, okay, we we bought cheap tickets. Obviously, it's a non-direct flight. They anticipated that they would deplane and then board another plane and soon be on their way uh, to to, uh, their destination of Australia. But but they were surprised when what they were boarded onto was a little 25-seat plane. They took off from the airport in Halifax and, uh, and landed an hour later in Sydney, Nova Scotia, Cape Breton Island. Emma was quoted as saying, obviously, it's a big disappointment. Can you imagine? Thinking you are, you are going on this great vacation to Australia. You've saved for this. You've been excited about this, anticipating this. Packed clothes for warm weather, I'm sure. Sydney, Australia, this place where there's so much to see and do. And you find yourself instead landing in this small former mining town in Nova Scotia, Canada, that boasts the highest unemployment rate in Canada at the time, where there's really not a lot to do. A big disappointment is probably a big understatement. This morning, we come to a a, a crucial passage in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, a passage that might, upon first hearing it, might threaten us as readers with a similar experience. After, after beginning with, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who come to God with nothing, who come empty-handed, spiritually bankrupt, knowing that, that they have nothing to merit anything from God. They come utterly needy, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the promise. We began there, and, and today we come to a text where, where we will hear Jesus say, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. What just happened? It feels like, or it threatens to feel like, Jesus just yanked the rug right out from under our feet. Like we just landed in, in Nova Scotia instead of Australia. What happened to the good news? What happened to grace? This can feel a lot like pressure. What, what, what are we supposed to do with this? To be sure, this is a difficult text. It is a crucial one, and we're going to wrestle through those challenges this morning. But I want to promise you this from the beginning, that, that the gospel has not gone anywhere, that we will discover, even in this challenging passage, we will experience, we will encounter the good news. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to follow along as I read Matthew 5, verses 17 to 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. 
I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's review where we've come from leading up to this. The Sermon on the Mount, I said when I introduced it, is, is really the ethics of God's inbreaking kingdom. The Sermon on the Mount shows us what life looks like when we hear and believe the good news. When the good news takes root in our hearts, our lives are changed. The Sermon on the Mount is describing that for us. It, it begins with the Beatitudes, the character of the gospelized, the character of God's disciples. When the gospel is heard, when it is believed, we begin to exhibit these qualities, poverty of spirit. We, we mourn because of sin, ours and that of those around us. We become meek, that is, we don't have to fight for the front of the line. We don't have to defend ourselves. We know that we're broken men and women in need of grace. We, we begin to hunger and thirst after righteousness. We uh, are merciful because we have experienced mercy. We become pure in heart. That is, we desire one thing. We grow to desire only Jesus. We become peacemakers. We run into the chaos and the conflict of this world, seeking to bring peace, proclaiming the Prince of Peace. And yes, we get crushed. We are the persecuted. We become all those things through the gospel in us. The Beatitudes show us Christian character. Last week, we looked at the, the next part of the sermon in which Jesus speaks about Christian influence. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Jesus says that his disciples are the most useful thing in the world, that the world needs us, that through our being rubbed into the fabric of society, God uses us as his gospelized men and women, those who are being changed. He, he uses us to stop the decay that sin brings, to shine a light on the truth of the gospel and our need for Jesus and what he is doing, his kingdom coming. So we have looked at Christian character and then Christian influence, and today we begin a section that speaks to Christian conduct, Christian behavior, how we live as those who are being transformed by the gospel. I want to begin, as if we haven't begun already, I want to Take a moment now just to explain a few things about a key phrase, a key term that we encounter in this text. In verse 17, on the lips of Jesus, we hear this. He says, uh, he uses the expression, the law or the prophets. He says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. A little bit later in verse 18, Jesus will simply use the word law. Not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law. What exactly is Jesus referring to? What is he speaking about when he says the, the law or prophets or when he uses simply the term the law? What we need to understand is that th that is an expression or even the law, that is a term uh, that is used to, to refer to the whole of God's written and revealed world, word. That is, it, it was uh, something used in Jesus' day to speak of, of what we call the Old Testament. That was their scripture. Okay, The law uh, 
Technically, the law speaks to the books of Moses, the first five books, and the prophets is uh, the other books. But, but the law and prophets, or the law or prophets, that speaks to God's written, revealed word. And so the law and prophets, or simply the law, speaks to that. Jesus here is speaking about the whole Old Testament, what was the scripture of the day. Now, it's important that we grasp that as we move into our text uh, and further on into the sermon. You see, Jesus' contemporaries were still trying to figure out who Jesus was, what Jesus was about. We know that as Jesus taught, the crowds were amazed at his authority. We'll see that at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. People will be amazed because he teaches with authority. So, so what does he say about what has been the authority? That is the Old Testament. And, and we know, if you've read the Gospels, you know that the religious leaders, the scribes, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, they... They were offended at Jesus' approach to the law, to the Old Testament. They, they thought Jesus was violating it, or he was certainly violating at least their understanding, their interpretation of it. And so here, right near the beginning of his ministry, Jesus lets them know, he lets us know, uh, he, he shared, makes his thinking about the scriptures clear. And so when he speaks of the law, or the law and the prophets, he's speaking about the whole Old Testament, God's written and revealed word. That's what he's referring to. We need to bear that in mind. Now, I want us to define, I want to define for you uh, the problem, if you will, the major problem that we encounter as we come to this text. There are two related claims that Jesus makes here in this passage that, if I could use the expression, kind of suck the, the wind out of the room, right? It's like a gut punch. We, we read uh, what Jesus says, and it can, it can stop us in our tracks. The first claim that Jesus makes is that the law, God's written, revealed word, the Old Testament, that it stands. What we find in the Old Testament is relevant to our lives as those who hear and believe the gospel. He asserts that the law of God is as permanent as, as the universe. Jesus is not against the law or the prophets. He's not against what has been said. He says, I have not come to abolish them. I haven't come to get rid of what has been written. I've not come to get rid of God's law or what the prophets have said. He goes on, he says, For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. I don't know if you've encountered this thinking that, that uh, it's quite prevalent. We encounter it where there is this, uh, this opposition between the law, what God said in the Old Testament, and the gospel that they are at odds with one another, that they're an antithesis of one another, that somehow the, the law is a bad thing, that the law is anti-gospel, and that the gospel, the good news, is good, and, and it's anti-law, that these things don't mix. Some, in fact, contend that the New Testament and Old Testament are at odds with one another. I don't know if you've ever heard that line of, of thinking, that the, that the God revealed in the Old Testament and the God revealed in the New Testament, they they, they don't even look the same. That the God revealed in the Old Testament seems to be a God full of wrath and, and rules, whereas God revealed in Jesus in the New Testament is, is full of love and grace. Have you heard that thinking ever? That's, that's out there, that there's this opposition. And it's presumed by some, therefore, that because Jesus is all about the good news, he came announcing it, he came preaching it, thus Jesus must necessarily be against the law. Consequently, it's also concluded by some that as Christians who have heard and believed the gospel, then the, the Old Testament law, the, the Old Testament scriptures are, are 
relatively irrelevant, completely irrelevant to our lives. That, that line of thinking is out there. This passage, though, forces us to rethink that. Rethink whether that distinction is correct, whether that's valid. Is the Old Testament actually against the gospel? Is it anti-gospel? Is the gospel that we encounter in the New Testament really against, is it at odds with what we encounter in the Old Testament? See, Jesus' words here challenge all who would come to that conclusion. Some of you perhaps have heard of Marcion. He was a second century heretic. Marcion believed that, that the Old Testament didn't work. In fact, Marcion rewrote the New Testament and he expunged it of every, all the references to the Old Testament. His New Testament was considerably shorter. Because if you've read the New Testament and you're familiar with the Old Testament, you realize that the New Testament often quotes and alludes and points to the Old Testament. Well, Marcion got rid of all of that. Because he thought the Old Testament is completely at odds with what Jesus is about, with the gospel. And so he just got rid of that. He, and he wrote this much shorter or rewrote the New Testament to be much shorter. In fact, some of his followers even went further than Marcion did, and they said that this is how they rewrote this passage. I have come not to fulfill the law and the prophets, but to abolish them. They just they saw no way forward. There's no way that the Old Testament fits with what Jesus is about. And yet Jesus' words here do not allow that. Jesus affirms as valid, as binding, is permanent, the whole of Scripture, which in his day was the Old Testament. All its requirements, all its demands, the smallest letter, every pen stroke, it all stands. So that's the first claim that Jesus makes that kind of sucks the wind out of the room. The second one, Jesus says this. He says that our righteousness must exceed For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. If if that's true, what, what hope is there? You see, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were the religious elites of that day. The teachers of the law or the scribes were were men who spent their lives studying and teaching the scriptures. They they wrote the scriptures, they memorized the scriptures, they studied them, they taught them. Their whole lives revolved around the scriptures and the nation looked to them as the spiritually elite. These were men who knew what God said. And then the Pharisees, the, the, the Pharisee sect began out of this, this deep desire to see God's people obey. It was born out of this passion for obedience to God. They were zealous for obedience. They wanted to see God's people walk in obedience and submission to God. That's where their movement began. And to that end, they developed, they developed regulations to help God's people. See, they built what we could call a fence around the law. If God said we weren't supposed to do this, let's back up two steps and put a fence there. Like, let's not even get close to doing those wrong things. And let's make sure here's the details of what it means to do the right things. And so they actually created 613 regulations, man-made regulations, in their attempt to help Israel walk in obedience. There were 248 commands, positively, things you were supposed to do. 365 negative prohibitions, things you weren't supposed to do. 
all in their attempt to help God's people walk in obedience. And they were considered the paragons of virtue, the paragons of righteousness. And yet here Jesus says, he says to his disciples, he says to the crowd gathered around him, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Imagine how those original hearers heard that. What was running through their minds? How how could they possibly have any hope? What about you and me? What runs through your mind? What are we to do with this hard word of Jesus? We hear that, and that's the second claim that Jesus makes here that can feel like a gut punch. Leave us gasping for wind. We feel like we just landed in Nova Scotia. What happened to the good news? Well, as we move further, I I want to unlock the key, show you the key to this passage. And the key to this passage is found in one word in verse 17, fulfill. Jesus says, I have not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but to fulfill them. To fulfill them literally means to, to fill up, to, to give true meaning to. So how does Jesus fulfill the law and the prophets? What does Jesus mean when he, he fills up, that he gives true meaning to the law and the prophets? Well, there are four important ways that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament scriptures, and I want to walk you through each of those four. The first is Jesus exegetes the law. He explains the law. To exegete something means to interpret, to explain. Jesus explains the Old Testament. Here, Jesus does not, as some suppose, Jesus doesn't introduce new legislation, new rules. Jesus doesn't say, okay, you've heard it said, but here, I'm going to crank it up a little bit on steroids. Here's my rules. That's not what Jesus is doing. We're going to see that in the coming weeks as we walk through the paragraphs that lie ahead. No, Jesus helps explain the original intent. He helps us understand what God intended with his law, with all that he said through the Old Testament. You see, the Jewish religious leaders, they, many of them cared, many of them sincerely cared about obedience, but, but to make obedience a little bit more doable, to make righteousness more attainable, they were restricting God's commands, that is, they were making God's commandments less onerous, and they were, they were making his permissions a little bit more permissive. Here's what John Stott writes. He says, they made the law's demands less demanding and the law's permissions more permissive. What Jesus did was to reverse both tendencies. He insisted instead that the full implications of God's commandments must be accepted without imposing artificial limits. Jesus is restoring. He is explaining all that God has taught, all that God has said through the Old Testament. He's explaining what it really means. He's explaining what God's heart behind it has always been. He's helping them understand it. And in the coming paragraphs, we will see that fleshed out. You see, Jesus is going to say, you've you've heard it said, don't commit murder, but I say, if you hate someone, what's he saying? He's saying, you know what, murder, murder is, this is about more than just the externals. This is about what's going on in your heart. Likewise, with adultery, you heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I say to you, if you look at a woman with lust, you've already committed. Jesus is saying, God's desire isn't merely external. 
God cares about the heart. He explains what God has always wanted. He's not introducing anything new. He is helping us understand. And and, and the law, rightly understood, demands not only outward conformity, but, but inward conformity to God's standard of holiness and righteousness. That's what I mean when I say Jesus came to explain or exegete the Old Testament. He explains it. He restores it. But you might be feeling, okay, that doesn't help encourage me much, Dennis, because we still have a problem, don't we? There's this standard of righteousness and holiness that God calls us to that just got, like, okay, now we get it more clearly, and that's a problem because, as Jesus says elsewhere, it's out of the heart that come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. So Jesus explaining this doesn't encourage me. It makes it more daunting. Well, let's move on to another way that Jesus fulfills this. The second way, Jesus is the end of the law. And that, I don't mean the end as in the law is over. He, he is the goal. Jesus is the one to whom the whole Old Testament points. The whole Old Testament story is telling the story of Jesus ahead of time. Do you know in Luke, after Jesus has gone to the cross, there's this amazing story. Jesus has gone to the cross. Uh, we know as readers that he's already been resurrected. His disciples have been told that they haven't encountered him yet. And, and two, of his, two of his followers are walking on the road to Emmaus. Many of you are familiar with this story. And Jesus shows up walking with them. They don't recognize him. He asks them what they're talking about, and they say, Jesus. And, anyways, and then we read this. Jesus says to the, this to them. How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses, that is the books of the law, and all the prophets, the, the law and the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. The Old Testament is about Jesus. The Old Testament is pointing us to Jesus. In the Garden of Eden, in chapter 3, Jesus is the offspring who will crush the serpent's head. In the story of Abram and Isaac on Mount Moriah, Jesus is the ram caught in the thicket who ends up laying down his life for Isaac. In In the Exodus, Jesus is the Passover lamb who sheds his blood so that the angel of death passes over. In the story of the Hebrews in the wilderness, Jesus is the manna. He's the bread from heaven. He is the living water. He is the rock out of of which that water flows. In the story of Leviticus, he is there seen in every one of the sacrifices. Youth, we just walked through Leviticus. Jesus is the burnt offering who pays the penalty for our sin. He he is the sin offering who cleanses us from the pollution of sin. He is the guilt offering who pays the price for our sin. He is the, the, the scapegoat of the day of atonement over whom the sins of the nation were, were prayed. And then he was brought outside the camp and died alone. He was brought outside the city and he, he paid the price so that God and his holiness might live amongst the people. Throughout he, he is the temple. He is, he is the place where God is present on earth. Throughout the pages of the Old Testament, if we read them correctly, we will see Jesus. Jesus is the end of the law. He is, he is the goal of it all. It is all pointing to Jesus. Thirdly, 
Christ executes the law. And here, perhaps more clearly than anywhere else, we see the the heart of the gospel. We, We see the cross. See, Jesus fulfills the law by executing the law. The law stands. All its demands and all its penalties, every jot or tittle are the the words in the literal. That is, every little marking in the Hebrew law, everything stands. And the law demands from us obedience, submission. We're called through God's word to live righteously. Leviticus Leviticus makes it perfectly clear that God who is holy can't dwell in the midst of a camp of people who are sinners. That's why annually this Day of Atonement was practiced, symbolically removing sin from the camp, bringing that scapegoat out, removing sin from the camp so that God and his holiness could dwell amongst unholy people. And the law stipulates that the penalty for sin, the penalty for disobedience is death. You see, when it comes to our sin, we, we want God to say, hey, no big deal, don't worry about it. It's not a big deal, don't, don't, don't even think about it. But, but see, sin is a big deal. God in his holiness cannot stand sin. One of my professors, Jared Packer, said God is allergic to sin. In his holiness, in his perfection, he cannot tolerate sin. He cannot stand for it. And in his justice, he must punish it. The penalty for sin must be paid. And so what hope do we have? What hope is there? Our hope is in Christ who executes the law. Jesus, God in flesh, who came and lived among us, who lived a life as a man, who lived on earth, and he alone, out of the billions of people who have lived on this planet, he submitted perfectly, completely to his Father. He walked in perfect obedience. He lived a holy life. And then he willingly chose to take your place and my place. He became our substitute. And he laid down his life on the cross. And he drank the cup of God's wrath for our sin, for our rebellion. He drank it to the dregs, every last drop of what you and I deserve because of our sin. He bore it as an innocent sacrifice before his Father, willingly, out of love for us. Not only that, not only did Jesus die in our place to pay the penalty, but Jesus' life of perfect obedience we are clothed with that. The theological the word is impute, imputation. We are imputed with Christ's righteousness. That is, you and I get credit. It goes into our account, Christ's perfect obedience, his submission, his holiness is ours. We're clothed with it. We're, we're, we're covered with his perfection. And so it's not that Jesus just forgives us and wipes the slate clean and now like, okay, get your act together. Don't screw up again. But no, he, he cleanses us, he, he forgives us, he purifies us, and then he covers us with his righteousness. He clothes us with his perfection. I want to speak to anyone who is here this morning with us online or here in the building. If you are not yet a follower of Jesus, I, I just want to speak to you for a moment. 
there are so many misconceptions about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, of what it means to be a Christian. It does not mean cleaning yourself up and coming to him. It means coming to him as you are and receiving his grace, his mercy, coming with empty hands. The Sermon on the Mount begins with that beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit. And, and, and that's where the Christian walk begins, coming to Jesus and saying, I, I'm a mess. I can't fix what's broken. I acknowledge my sin. I acknowledge that I have gone too long my own way. I want to submit to you. I, I want to repent and believe. I put my trust in you. You can do that this morning. And you can receive his amazing gift of forgiveness, of righteousness, of, of new life, of adoption, of his spirit. Your life can change this morning. I urge you to repent and to believe the good news. Fourth way that Jesus fulfills the, the law, the Old Testament, is Jesus empowers obedience to the law. The prophet Ezekiel foretold a day when God would rescue his rebellious people. I want you to listen to these amazing words spoken by the prophet Ezekiel. I, for I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And listen to this. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Let me read that again. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. That is a promise of God, a promise of what his rescue will entail. New hearts cleansing us and his spirit and him working in us, moving us to obey all that he's called us to. And we see this reality, this, this assertion throughout the pages of the New Testament. That, that God, by his spirit, through the gospel, will change us. That he will give us new longings, new affections, new desires. That he will shape us to be men and women, young and old, who love what he, loves what he loves and who grow to hate what he hates. He, he says that we will learn to live life, uh, life by the spirit in a new way of the spirit. That, uh, that our lives by his spirit in us will produce the fruit of the spirit. That's not the fruit of our own efforts. It's the fruit of his spirit in us. His very presence in us, changing us. We will begin to look different. We will begin to live differently, to behave ourselves differently. We will begin to live lives of the kingdom, lives of the future and the present. As citizens of his kingdom, yours is the kingdom of heaven. We will live as citizens of the, the kingdom that we belong to, the kingdom of heaven. The character of the kingdom will be manifested in our lives, the Beatitudes. We will influence the world as his kingdom citizens. In our lives, our behavior will begin to change. We will grow. His spirit that dwells us will move us to obey all that he commands us to obey. Our lives will increasingly reflect the righteousness of his kingdom. Not sinless perfection, but divine infection. God in us changing us, shaping us, 
shaping our desires, empowering us to confess sin and grow in him, to grow in obedience, to grow in righteousness. We will be changed and transformed. And that righteousness, brothers and sisters, will be a righteousness, is a righteousness that surpasses that of the teachers of the law and the Pharisees. You see, their righteousness missed the heart of God. Their righteousness was external. They they missed the, the desire of God to transform them wholly. And their righteousness was a product of their own human striving. They thought that they could do this by their own efforts. The righteousness that is ours in Christ is a gift. It is a gift wrought by Christ's death on the cross for us, and it is a gift wrought by God's Spirit, God's presence in us by His Spirit, moving us, shaping us, transforming us. Not merely outward conformity to a moral code, but internally changed hearts, changed motives, changed behaviors. And as the Apostle Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians, we are increasingly transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory. I remember our couple from Britain, Raul and Emma. They found themselves in the wrong place. They found themselves deeply disappointed. I, I trust that that has not been our experience this morning. That as we have dug into this text, we realize that Christ isn't pulling anything out from under us. It's my hope, rather, that Christ has opened our eyes to see and to understand who he has made us to be, what he has done to save us, and how he is at work in us to transform us. You see, even in the Old Testament, God's people, God's people didn't become his people by obeying the law, right? We understand that? God rescued his people. And then through his law, through his revealed written word, he showed them what it meant for them to live as his people. The the Ten Commandments in Exodus begin with, I am the Lord your God who rescued you from Egypt. And then he says, this is what it means. The the Old Testament was never about obeying the law to, to get right with God. It was about, hey, I've rescued you, so here's how you should live. But see, in the Old Testament, they couldn't do it because they were doing it by their own effort. None of us can live right by our own strength, but the Spirit of God indwells us, applying the work of Christ in our lives, and so we can grow. Again, not sinless perfection, but divine infection, transformed lives, learning to be who we are, learning to live out the ethics of the kingdom. In Christ, we are His kingdom people, growing in obedience not as a means to gain acceptance, but because we are His, because we belong to His kingdom, because we are created as His image bearers to reflect His likeness in the world. In Christ, through the cross, we have been made subjects of His kingdom, adopted. We are God's new humanity. We are beatitude people. We are the gospelized, those learning to live the life of the future and the present, the life of the kingdom of heaven on earth.